The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. So last month, the week my memoir was coming out, I walked into our office and there was a guy there who was there for another event. Now, he was also releasing a book, also his memoir, Christopher Rivas. You might know him from his acting career. I found him charming in Call Me Cat. Anyhow, we exchanged books and we congratulated each other and I tucked his book in my bag. Now, later that day on the way home, I started it and I could not put it down. Y'all, this was a beautiful book, literary, lyrical, and emotionally on point. The title, Brown Enough, True Stories About Love, Violence, the Student Loan Crisis, Hollywood, Race, Familia, and Making It in America. And yes, my memoir was about queerness, and his was about brownness. But they both explored similar complexities of identity. When I had really first settled into my soul that you could be more than one thing, literally, I fell in love. You can be more than one thing. And that related to race and my body and just me as an artist. I was like, I can be more, we can be more than one thing. There isn't a box that can contain us. So I invited him into the studio to talk about his life and everything he has learned about how to be human in a brown body. This episode is about what we can do and what we can find when our answers lie outside binaries of this or that, black or white, when everything is possible and nothing is fair. It's about what's possible when we acknowledge our complexity and sit steeped in it. Isn't that what life asks of us? Chris's story starts on the night that he went to hear ta Coates speak. Here's Chris. I I had no idea who he was, which I feel is a part of the story that I really enjoy because he was a huge writer, you know, our modern day James Baldwin. He's, you know, still is. I think he has the most read article in the history of the internet, A Case for Reparations. And I did not know, you know, it wasn't a part of my life, this this idea of of race relations in this world and and, and my body in, in this world. And I went and... Uh, and Tanahasi Coates was doing his thing, you know, talking about race in America and black and white and black and white. And this question time came and I was like, oh, I think I'm going to raise my hand. I wish I raised my hand more as a child. I'm proud of my curiosity now as an adult that allows me to ask questions. And I said, you know, in a black, white world, as a Dominican, Colombian, brown kid from Queens, where does that leave me in the conversation? And he said, not in it. And he said it very simply and he said it very easily. I felt like a child reprimanded because, you know, like that was it. It was like not in it. I didn't have a rebuttal. They took the mic from me. I sat down and my world changed. I felt shattered, which to me is a great feeling because it's not something you have to repair from. It's something that opens you up to something else. I think it's like you go through the shattering and you, and you find more size, more growth, more life. 
And I thought of Queens. I thought of my neighborhood. I thought of Jackson Heights. I thought of my parents. I thought of my family. I thought of my friends. I thought of most of New York, you know, and I said, oh, wait, so there's no brownness in this conversation of race in this black and white world. And that got me to thinking about everything in the middle, what it means to take up space in the middle, you know, and as a Buddhist, the middle is so important. There's more space in the middle than there is everything else. There's no fixed endpoints, but yet we love our yes, no's, our right, wrong, our pass, fail, this, that, she, he. And so what does it look like to live in a more non-binary middle space? Uh, and I thought brownness was a beautiful way for me to explore that and my own brownness. Um, I really love that. And I think that that is what leapt out to me about your book, your ability to hold the both and the and, to speak about the nuance of what it is to be human and to be human in your skin in particular. There's this one part where early on you wrote, and I wrote it down, that you were exploring how to live within the system, to want things to change, but also to be complicit in the way that they are. And I wonder if you might talk to me a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, so maybe not everyone in this world, but many humans have their own sort of privilege. As a brown man, as a lighter-skinned brown man, depending on how much sun I get, I have had the privilege to play, dance, and fit in a little bit everywhere. Tie that to my lessons on assimilation when I was a kid, tie that into my acting, you know, like... I could hang out with the Upper East Side yuppies and I could hang out with my homie in the Bronx and then go down to Staten Island with my friend Tina and then kick it in Jackson Heights uh, or in Jamaica, Queens. Like I could sort of do it all, speak all the tongues, I say, not speak all the languages. And and so I, at some point in writing this book and in living my life, I believe in radical honesty, radical accountability. How have I been also moving towards whiteness, which means survival, right? Which means uh, getting ahead. And how have I been moving away from blackness? It means looking at my own blood. It means looking at my Dominican and Colombian roots, which have so much anti-blackness in them. Looking at all this and being honest about it and calling it for what it is. And that also goes to things like the climate, right? Like, which I'm, uh, I order from Amazon Prime. And so I do that, but I also compost. And I want people to use less water, but uh, every once in a while, there's nothing better than a bath. You know, like, I think it's just all of it. Yeah. I really connected to that because I am, I am a gay woman. Um, I'm very heteronormative in appearance, and that gives me so much passing privilege. And I take advantage of that passing privilege all the time in little ways and in big ways and in ways that I... Um, wouldn't own publicly if you cornered me and asked me, but know um, that I should. And it felt to me um, that you you too are exploring the ways in which a, a nuanced identity um, allows you to function within a system. And maybe that's okay. Maybe you can at the same time want things to be different and work for things to be different. And also... Um, recharge by relaxing a bit into a system that is willing to allow for your existence within its own. Yeah. I mean, there's a thousand metaphors about that, right? Like you are in the world, but you are not of the world. But also if you want to change the world, you have to understand the world. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, you have to hold space for yourself and hold space for others. Like there's all of Zen, right? All of it is like this and that. You can hold two opposing ideas in the mind at the same time. I've been trying this thing where when I'm going to have an interesting conversation with someone, I ask you all to suggest questions. We crowdsource them together on LinkedIn. Anyhow, by far, our listeners were most excited to hear about one topic, colorism. Because everyone pretty much agreed that it's hard to talk about, but Chris tackles it directly. I don't know why it's hard to talk about. Uh, Maybe it scares people. That's why. Because you might see yourself, you might have to confront yourself. Uh, You might have to confront your family. You might have to confront that every time we walk into a Walgreens or a CVS, there's skin whitening cream on the shelf. You talked about being exposed to it early within your own family. Do you want to share a little bit about how you first came to it? Yeah. So in my family, I have the biggest lips, the biggest nose, thickest, curliest hair. They would make jokes about me being adopted. And it's not a unique thing, right? Like I think that happens to a bunch of kids in a bunch of families. Or I have this line in my play uh, that I wrote, The Real James Bond was Dominican. And I say, how many of us, and I actually asked this to the audience, how many of us have been called big nose by the ones we love? And there's so many families and people who they made that joke about them, about their kid. And it's, and it's a joke, you know, or a lot of comments I get from people who read this book or who've seen the player, they say, my family used to call me like, the pretty negrito, right? As a joke, it was the sweet thing to say. You're the pretty dark one. These like subtle things that I don't even think the family understands how deeply they're rooted in them. How deeply rooted it is that you burn your hair to make it straight. And the amount of time I spent in these salons with that very particular smell of burning hair. I think about my grandma, my black Dominican grandmother, who's not black. I swear she's not black, you know, but you're, you're black. Uh, And I don't have language for this as a child. I know that something about that hurt me, right? I I know that I don't like that I don't look like the boys on TV. That stuff kind of hurts internally. And so this colorism, when you start to wake up to it, you start to see it everywhere. And then you go through the history of time and, you know, whiteness has established itself as a dominant image for so, 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 so long. And we are all products of that. Every single one of us, including, you know, whiteness. I always quote James Baldwin here, but he says, as soon as we put one person in the cage, we put everyone in the cage, white people too. And no one's free until everyone's free. And I think that's true about colorism. I think that's true about capitalism. I think that's true about (laughs) all the isms. Right. We're all in them. We're all in the cage. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, more with Christopher Rivas. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. Chris grew up in a pretty magical sounding neighborhood in Queens. Reading about his childhood there was one of my favorite parts of the book. 
His dad was the super of his building. He had a childhood best friend, Danny, who lived in that very same building. Now Danny died, tragically, while the boys were in middle school. Just a couple of years later, 9-11 happened. Chris was in his fourth day of high school in Manhattan. Danny's dad showed up to pick him up. We all remember, I think, where we were in that time. I happened to be in school in Manhattan. Uh, You see all the teachers running around, like a lot of knocking on doors. No one's really really telling the kids what's happening. Slowly news starts to trickle, trickle. You're not really having school anymore, but also there's major panic and the school doesn't know what to do with us. They don't know like the world is sort of safe out, so they can't just let us out um, of school, which also is something I don't think they could do on a regular day until school's over officially. But they're definitely not teaching us. And no parent can call because every parent is trying to call someone at the same exact time in New York City. So all the phone lines are are jammed. And I'm just kind of sitting there, uh, still very confused about what's actually taking place outside. And I get a, you know, Christopher Rivas come to the office and Barry, Danny's father, um, you know, my best friend in the whole world, my brother. He came, he walked all the way from his job to pick me up in my school. And I didn't even know that he knew where my school was, which is kind of wild. He hadn't spoken to my parents about it. Uh, And then we hadn't really seen each other since Danny died, since Shiva and, and what a day to see him. And he picked me up and he did one of those remarkable things that only happened a few times in our lives where being with someone is not about talking with them. It's about being with them in presence. There was a lot of silence. He said, you hungry? I said, I am. He got me a burger at a diner. Um, I got a burger. He explained what he knew about what was going on. He knew he would have to walk home over the 59th Street Bridge. We didn't talk much about Danny. We just kind of were there, present. And he safely guided me home during a really unbelievable time in the world, uh, and especially in a city, a city that makes so much of who I am. Yeah. It's my perception as a reader that that story is a metaphor for what your book does. You know, this person, this fellow human who was not in your life until that moment and who after that moment, again, was not really in your life. Yeah. Right. Um, but he, he just showed up so powerfully for you. Moved to Morocco. Moved about as uh, far as you can move. <laughs> about as far as you can move, right? But I think that's the obligation that we as humans have to each other when we can muster it. And that the long arc of our lives is not nearly so important as the moments when we can show up for each other. I mean, the closest people that you have in your life, but also just the people who happen to walk by you at the moment in their lives when you can show up for them. And I think your book does a beautiful job of doing that for readers, of saying, this is what my experience of being human is like. Read it, and maybe you can see something of your experience of being in a brown body or in a human body. I hope that, you know, is what happens is that I have a moment in the book where I talk about, I ask a question, you know, what if each and every one of us did one thing every day? that was, I'm changing the words now, but are sort of more rooted in in compassion and in care. And now I'm even changing it to like, I don't even think we need to look for the action. I think we need to live with our hearts a little more open and expansive, our chest open. 
because then we will be moved to do something. Danny's dad showed this incredible compassion. He felt moved to be there, even though his son wasn't, even though that wasn't fair. And fairness is a theme that also comes up in Chris's book in a variety of ways. There's a lot of reflection on inequity and unfairness. So I asked him what he thinks our cultural obsession with fairness is all about. As children, right? I mean, kids want fairness. You you got to, I get to. If that's something that feels kind of inherent in us as, as humans, we want what others have. We want what others have. I want to say that again. We want what others have. Now in a world that for a long time has not been fair, from the moment we stole bodies, from the moment we stole land, from the moment we told people to do things they were never doing because we needed them to do them for us, we lost all fairness. And unfortunately, I mean, you look at all the bodies of culture and then you add women into that, like <laughs> there is more unfairness towards basically everyone, <laughs> like uh, the majority of the world. And so fairness doesn't exist. And yet that's something we desire so inherently. We desire what others have. And also being honest is about like looking at your life and saying, how did I receive this? How do I hold it? Is it fair? Can I make it fair? You know, bodies of culture think it's, this is in our blood from the moment we're born that we have to work extra hard just to get to the starting line. That is not fair. I'm in a place now where I'm like, you know, screw the starting line. You don't have to run the race. The myth, the lie told you you needed to run the race, which is like, they want you to run the race. You know, they need you to run the race. But if you step back and you take up space and you're like, I'm not running this race, not for you, that that is how you, that is how you start to claim power. Like, it seems like what I what I hear you saying is that letting go of the idea that fairness is something to which to aspire allows you to step into what you uniquely have to offer and what you uniquely inherit. And I think here about your description of the myth of the American dream, right? Like this, this idea that we live in a meritocracy, that people are rewarded equally for their hard work. Anybody who listens to this show already knows that I believe that that is a myth. But the American dream really did not serve you in some powerful ways in your adolescence. Um, and yet, the thing that you wanted to be was an actor. And here I am talking to you, a successful actor. So how do you think about the American dream now? You know, I stand by the, the chapter, the title of the book is The American Dream. Like I, I stand by that, you know, America is the first pyramid scheme. I love that episode of Seinfeld that I talk about, you know, George's dead wife, uh, her, his, her parents come to visit and he says he has a house in the Hamptons and uh, they know he doesn't have a house in the Hamptons and he doesn't have a house in the Hamptons, but he's going to show them the house in the Hamptons. So they all get in the car to drive to the Hamptons to a house that doesn't exist. And no one is saying that they all know there's no house in the Hamptons, but they keep going on the drive anyway. And uh, I think that's the American dream. You know, we're driving to a house that doesn't exist, but maybe it'll pop up. Maybe it'll just, it'll just appear. The American dream is why my parents worked 
a 9 to 5, and then a 7 p.m. to a 3 a.m. to get their first house. The American dream is why they had a mortgage they couldn't afford. The American dream is credit cards. The American dream is is an image sold to you, right? Again, not fair. Yeah. It is an image sold by by a very particular set of, of person. But they say, you can have this too, but they don't actually serve you in having it. And then you become, especially with student loans, you know, which I think are uh, criminal, you know, asking a young person to absorb astronomical amounts of debt is a crime. And then you're doing it normally into families who don't have much financial education. My parents didn't know much about loans and uh, compounded interest and FAFSA versus public versus private versus Pell versus... And yet they believed in the dream. We all did. My son has to go to college. He's got to be the first to like get that degree. Yes. And so when I go and I get it and I fulfill this dream, then I'm, I'm punished. And yes, I did, you know, quote unquote, I don't know if, you know, make it's the word. Uh, I don't regret any of my decisions because I'm here with the ability to talk about them. But I know that if a young person asked me if they should go to college today, I would say there's options. Let's talk about it. (laughs) There's options. Chris, I want to talk about student loan debt directly because you call out the amount of student loan debt you had when you were writing this book. Maybe it's what you still have, $244,000, I believe. Mm-hmm. I remember the number specifically because my wife has um, $240,000. So now I know of at least one person who has <laughs> more than her. And it is a crippling um, mantle that you you wear going forward. It impacts the financial decisions we make even now in our life, in our mid-40s. It sounds like it continues to really impact the decisions you make And there's one part in the book where you say, I'm afraid to have children because of this. Do you still stand by that? I mean, now there's like 37 reasons I'm afraid to have children. (laughs) (laughs) Crumbling economy, a planet that's on fire, lack of water, add that to the list. This world can sadden me at times and then also give me tremendous hope at times. We're having conversations like this that gives me hope. The messages I get about, you know, this allowed me to say this and take up space or go by my real name as opposed to, you know, my name is Malanali. I've been letting people call me Molly. Like that gives me hope. So am I afraid to have children because I don't want to pass on to them my student debt? Less so than when I wrote it. Because now I think, you know, should I be given the uh, the opportunity and the mission of, of having a child, what I am preparing them for is so much bigger than than debt. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. How do you think about your loans now? Do they factor into the decisions that you make at this point in your life and your career? No, I, I mean, I'm very blessed. Like, uh, I'm blessed that I'm able to talk about them. Without shame, the book, the title has enough in it. And enoughness to me means you are enough right now. Your cup is full right here, right now. And you can't put no shame on my name. Like I am enough right here, right now with my $244,000 in student loan debt. And I can challenge this American system that I invested in and, and played the game 
because I love it, because I can't regret. I went to a school and I got this beautiful education and made great community and it, and it made me hustle and thrive and all of this. Three years ago, Chris wrote an essay for the Modern Love column in the New York Times. You ever read that column? People try to sum up the truths they've learned about what it means to love. And wow, Chris captured something with this piece because it went viral. The title I had named it was, Please Don't Hate Me For Dating White Women. They changed it to, I broke up with her because she's white, which is what helped it become so clickbaity. And it worked. And <laughs> and so we published this piece in the Times and it went insane. It got translated into a bunch of languages, went all over the world. And everyone and their mother, I got death threats, but I also got gratitude. I got marriage proposals. I got people ending their relationship of 14 years because they were finally able to have a conversation they haven't been able to have in 14 years. I got it all. And it was because this is a real thing. We are all in the cage and we lack sometimes the tools to see the cage. And that's why I think art is so special. It allows us to see the bars. It allows us to see also the keys and that we are both in the cage and outside of the cage, locking ourselves in and setting ourselves free. So that's what this piece did. It really opened so many doors of perception for people, you know, myself included. Yeah. It's really important that we make space to sit in the spaces of, I don't know, to sit in the spaces of complexity, to, to not have to have a fixed viewpoint and yeah. just be in that middle space. Our job is to keep creating those spaces. That was actor and author Christopher Rivas. Check out his memoir, Brown Enough, wherever books are sold. So this week, I want to talk about some of the themes that came up in the book. Specifically, at office hours, I want to talk about this struggle to feel like you're enough. So come join me on Wednesday afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern. I will be there, as always, with our producer, Sarah Storm. We'll be on the LinkedIn news page. And if you're having trouble finding us, feel free to email us at hellomondayatlinkedin.com and we'll send you the link. Now, if you like the show, please follow and review it wherever you get your podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks so much. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with mixing by Joe DeGiorgi. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor welcome us for who we are. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. I just got back from the Deep South on these little book tours. And, you know, some 70-year-old woman in Mississippi told me that the book helped her connect to her 8-year-old transgender grandchild. And, like, you know, not to be totally corny, but that is the only marker of success that gives me any fulfillment or desire to write again. It's not, it's, it's not corny. I mean, that's exactly what fills my cup is when you're actually engaging because the whole reason I make art is I don't actually think art exists without the other person. And so those moments, I am right there with you. They like charge the battery.